Excellent. All right, let's go ahead and uh, turn to John chapter 5, please. If you'd like a title, if you're making notes, this message is called The Outrageous Claims of Deity. And although we're going to focus on verses 19 through 29, um, by way of context, if we're going to understand what's going on in verses 19 to 29, we've really got to understand what in fullness is going on between 1 and 18, which is what Brendan preached on last time. So just by way of context, we're going to read all the way from verse 1 through to the end of verse 29. This is God's word. So expect to be addressed by God because these are his words. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterwards Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See? You are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now. And I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who fear him will live. 
For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we gather around your word, this is always a holy moment in our service. Because these are your words. These are words that have been exhaled from your mouth, the sovereign one of all, the great one. And so, Lord, today, would we not then stand over your word and critique it? Would your word critique us? For your word always requires a response. And so, Lord, would you give us eyes to see and would we marvel at all that you've said and all that is true. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, in all our lives, I was thinking about it this week, we we all have times where we go through things and we wonder, really, with this phrase, we simply wonder, how did that happen? And that happens to us all the time, doesn't it? There's moments where you just think, how how did, how did that occur? You're watching TV, someone like The Voice, great program, and, and somebody does a, you know, a good song, and you think, oh, they must have loved it, and you leave for a cup of coffee for a moment, and by, you t- by the time you come back, they've been voted out. And you think, well, how did that happen? You know, so how, what, what happened there? Or you're watching a soccer match, which is my want, and you, you're 1-0 up, you're cruising, but by the time you get back from the bathroom, you're 2-1 down. And you, how, how did that happen? You were playing so well. As you know, I have three children, and so we have a lot of how did that happen moments in our house? Moments where you are playing with your children, they are being entertained, they are loving each other like as if they are Jesus themselves. And you think, isn't it good to be alive? All is well with the world. And you leave the room for a moment, and, and as you come back, you realize World War Three is now occurring in the room. And you think, how did that happen? It was going so well when I left, but now it's clearly not going so well at all. How did that happen? And in many ways, I think studying the Gospel of John as a a whole book can can be like that. I mean, we're going to get to John chapter 18 and 19. Jesus gets arrested. Jesus gets beaten. Jesus gets whipped. There's a mock trial established quickly on the fly. And then he is crucified. And yet, chapters 1 through and 4, you get no inkling at all that that is going to happen. Because if you isolate chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4, Jesus is overwhelmingly loved. They think he's amazing. Crowds are coming out to follow him. He's healing people. He's seeing people baptized. Great crowds are coming out to be baptized. People are leaving John, the Baptist, and now starting to follow Jesus. His popularity is on an absolute high, and they are hailing him. Everybody wants to be around Jesus. Everybody loves Jesus. And yet just a few chapters on, they're shouting, crucify him. And you can wonder, I think, how did that happen? What, what, went, what went wrong? Well, I'll tell you what happened. Chapter 5 happened. Chapter 5 takes place in the gospel. And it's in chapter 5 that we see for the first time the words, kill him. We see for the first time in the book a great change of tone and we see for the first time the reasons as to why Jesus will, within not too long after this, 
find himself hanging on a cross. And so to understand it, let's set the scene again and let's go back to where we were a few weeks ago to understanding what is happening here in chapter 5. See, Jesus for some time has been in Galilee. He stopped on the way to Galilee, as we all know, in, in a, around Jacob's well in Samaria. He wanted to talk to this, this woman who was an adulterous woman. We've married several times, but Jesus wanted to meet her. Jesus wanted to encounter her and Jesus wanted to save her. Well, that all happens on the way to Galilee. And they get to Galilee and Galilee is clearly a great time too. Jesus heals the official son. The official son comes and says, is there any chance you can heal my son? Would you come with me? And he says, I don't need to come with you. But go, your son as well. And that's what we see Jesus doing in Galilee. But now we find he's made his way back down to Jerusalem for one of the feasts, the Feast of the Jews. And on this particular day, Jesus is alone. We don't know where the disciples have gone. We have no idea really where they are. But what is evident is they're not actually with him And in this alone state, Jesus goes out for a walk and he finds himself at a pool by the sheep gate called Bethesda. And there's no doubt what he would have encountered in that moment at that pool would have been a pathetic and sorry for itself view. You see, there wasn't a welfare state at this time. And so if you were sick, heavily sick, paralyzed or blind or lame, your best chance is to get healed. And so people look to all sorts of superstitious ways to try and get healed. And this pool was one of those superstitious places. And so what Jesus would have encountered as he arrived at this pool would be literally hundreds of people who would be around this pool who are blind, who are lame, and who are paralyzed. And they're all there because they believe that every now and again an angel of the Lord is stirring these waters and the first one in gets healed. It's like a superstitious lottery. But these guys are desperate. And so they're all aligning themselves around the pool. Now what is actually happening, because they found out later, is this is a natural spring underneath the pool, which caused the pool to now and again bubble from beneath and, and bubble. And they thought that was an angel of the Lord stirring it. Well, it wasn't. But you know, it's surprising when you're desperate how superstitious you can become. Because you just want to see change. Well, as Jesus walks into this place, there are indeed hundreds of people then around this pool hoping that they would get healed. When the spring would come forth from within, they would think that the angel is stirring it and there would be a mad scramble where everybody just tried to dive in and be the first, thinking if they could be the first, that they would get healed. A healing that we don't have any reports of actually taking place. But they were hopeful, so they tried Well, while there, Jesus meets this man who's been an invalid for 38 years. And meeting this man, he's aware that this man has come to this pool many days for 38 years in desperation of getting healed. And so he says to them, says to this man, do you want to be healed? Yeah, that can be a strange thing to say, can it not? You think, has the Savior had a brain freeze? I mean, that is why he's there, is he not? No, of course he wants to get healed. But the point was, he's asking this man, do you know what, are you sure you want to get healed? Because the point of, part of what it meant of being paralyzed is it means you had the, the ability to beg. So you would get money off people for food and that became a way of life for many different people. If I heal you, you're going to have to go out into the world to get a job. Are you ready for that? That's what he's effectively saying. Are you sure you want to be healed? Well, this man says, listen, I'm absolutely sure. And so in a moment, in just a sentence, Jesus gives this man what he wants. He looks at him, looks him straight in the eye and says, get up. Take up your bed and walk. Imagine the scene. 
You know, I got asked at teens. I, I had an evening with the teens the other week, and it was just wonderful. One of the questions was, if you could choose between going back in time and forward in time, what would you do? I'd go back in time every time. And I'd be thinking about going about to days like this. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? When Jesus says to this man, who's been paralyzed for 38 years, get up, take your bed and walk. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen what that looked like as his limbs became strong and he began to walk and roll up his bed? What, what must the faces of people have been like? You would expect that in this moment there would be a euphoria around the Savior. That there would be a euphoria around this man who has been paralyzed for 38 years but is now completely healed. You would assume that people would be applauding in great joy in all that is taking place. But that isn't what happens. In utter absurdity, there is no joy seemingly at this place. In absurdity and irony, the religious Jews gather around this man and they are appalled. They are appalled because he is carrying his mat. And this is the Sabbath. And that's against the law. Isn't it absurd? Isn't it ironic? But that is exactly what happens. It is not lawful to carry your bed on the Sabbath. And so instead of rejoicing with him, they point the finger at this man and ask him what on earth he thinks he's doing. See, I was looking at that some more this week. And you think... It may be a mistake on my behalf, I don't believe so, but it doesn't say in my Bible that it is not lawful to carry a bed on the Sabbath. Does it say it in yours? Negative. It doesn't. So what on earth are they on about here? What they're on about here is a Jewish rule and regulation. You see, the Jews were so passionate about keeping the law that they really built a religion around it. They had hundreds, if not thousands, of rules added to the law that were extra fences around the law to ensure that they couldn't actually break the law. And over decades and decades, that became religion. They thought that their very salvation would depend on how well they can compete and and do the law. Well, 39, then, of these rules and regulations related to the Sabbath alone. They didn't want to break the Sabbath, so they built all these man-made rules around it. And some of them are absolutely hilarious. It was illegal to look in a mirror on the Sabbath. Looking in a mirror was forbidden. Church must have been a lot of fun on the Sabbath because it was illegal to look in a mirror with the simple, with the simple accolade that if you look in the mirror and you think you might need to make a change, that would be work. So don't look. Awkward, but funny. You could not carry a handkerchief on the Sabbath. That was illegal, but you could wear one. So if your wife is downstairs and you are upstairs and she asks for a handkerchief or she asks for a towel, you cannot pick it up and carry it down the stairs. But you can tie it to your arm. And then you walk down the stairs and you untie it and you give it to her. That's fine. But it's illegal to carry the handkerchief. It's illegal to carry the towel. You have to tie things to your body. It was illegal and against the law to walk more than a thousand yards. But if you tied a piece of rope around your ankle as you left your house, that thousand-yard rope is given to you for free because they class that as an extension of your home. So you had all these Jews walking around with rope attached to their feet and the first thousand yards was just rope. There must have been rope everywhere and then when they get to the end of the rope, they untie it and they know they've still got another thousand legs. Isn't that crazy? Utter madness. But it was a madness that was all trying to protect the Sabbath. And one of those utter madness comments is that it is not lawful to carry your bed on the Sabbath. And so they respond to this guy who's been paralyzed for years in utter disdain. 
How dare you carry your bed this day? This is the Sabbath. Well, the religious Jews and the temple authorities, which is really probably who are interviewing this man at this time, start to ask him who he thinks he is. What on earth do you think you're doing? And this man says, he made me do it. He starts to point the finger at Jesus. And he can't find Jesus straight off. So he says, listen, I, I, I'll recognize him down the track. And he does. Jesus encounters him in the temple. And this guy says, yeah, that's him. What's your name, Jesus? Good, thank you. Runs to the temple authorities and tells them Jesus made them do it. And that's when it all begins to completely kick off. Look at verse 15 again. It says, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now and I am working. This is the moment where history changes. This is the moment where everything starts to kick off for Jesus. Because he goes toe to toe with the religious authorities in this moment. And says, you know what, yeah, that was me. I did it. I said to this guy to take up his mat and, and to walk. I healed him. Well, the religious authorities in this moment are now appalled with Jesus. They hate Jesus because quite clearly he is a Sabbath breaker. He has broken the religious law on this day, and so they hated him for that. But more than that, they now wanted to kill him because he was claiming deity. The phrase, my father is working, is utterly offensive to a Jew. All Jews would say, our father. It was fine in the collective sense that, okay, God can be our father. But to say my father in Jewish tradition and understanding meant that you were making yourself equal with God, i.e. God. It was a claim to deity and they knew it only too well. And so in verse 18 we read, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself Equal with God. Jesus goes toe-to-toe with the religious authorities for the first time. And the result, as he goes toe-to-toe with them, is that the question of, how did that happen, gets answered. From this moment on, they're always trying to kill him. They're trying to get to him. They want to see this man dead. He is a Sabbath breaker. And he is a blasphemer. He is claiming to be God. And so we want to see him killed. You know what I love then about this text in front of us today, verses 19 through 29, is the Savior's response. See, the Savior in this moment does not back off. He doesn't run away. He stands firm and he takes the opportunity to make it absolutely clear to those religious authorities that, listen, I am God. And he does it by making three more claims. I mean, this is just wonderful, wonderful kingship. The saviour of the world, God incarnate, is not intimidated or manipulated in any moment by these religious authorities. So he goes toe-to-toe with them and he says, you know what? Just in case you aren't clear of that claim, I'm going to give you another three. Because I want you very aware that I'm claiming to be God. That's full on. And that's our saviour, folks. That's our king. Whenever you see him in paintings, he always looks like a bit of a girly boy. And he just wasn't. He was a man's man. Chasing people down and standing toe-to-toe with people. He's the king. He's the savior. And so what we have in front of us this morning then are the three claims to deity. 
If you want to know in a sentence what I think we have here this morning, it's this. Three outrageous claims of deity. Claims that have life-changing implications for each and every one of us. See, now and again, I chat to people who don't know the Lord, who are unbelievers. And one of the things that I always love to chat to them about is, you know, what do you, who do you think Jesus was? Do you think he was like a moral teacher, or a good guy, or a leader? And what, what do you think he was? And one of the things that always intrigues me is the number of people say, well, I think, he, I think he's probably a good guy, probably a good leader, and, and so on and so forth. And you say, well, do you think that um, he could be God, like he claimed to be? And many times I've had people come back to me and say, he never claimed to be God. And you say, really, where, where did you get that from? Well, the Bible never teaches that he claims to be God. Jesus never claims to be God. <laughs> oh, yes, he does. Time and time and time again, all the way through the Gospels, he is repeating the phrase all the time, either directly or implicitly, that I'm God. I'm the one. I'm the Messiah. I am deity. And so this morning, my hopes, as we look at these three claims to deity, these three outrageous claims, my hope is that we would learn and delight from them, that we would see our Savior as King of kings and Lord of lords, and that that would cause delight for ourselves. But my prayer is also that we would discern the implications. Because if Jesus really did, as God, walk around this earth, that changes everything. And I think that's something that we get so familiar with. Like, yeah, yeah, Jesus. Yeah, he walked around, he was God. Uh Uh-huh. That's massive. God came to earth. So let's look then at these three claims. Three claims as he points us to the truth that he is God. Number one, he claims complete unity between himself and the Father. A direct claim to deity. Look again at verse 19 and 20. He says this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel. Jesus is not going to back off in these moments in any shape or form. Jesus knows he is God. In John chapter 10, later on in this gospel, Jesus is going to say, The Father and I are one. And so for all those that have seen me, you've seen the Father. The book of Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact representation of his being. Jesus knows full well that he is God and so he is not interested in backing away from this moment. He is interested in pressing in on this moment and looking those religious leaders right in their eyes and making it very clear to them that I am God. And so he explains to them that between me and the Father there is complete and utter unity. What he's saying is, you know what? The Father's actions, they're my actions. My purpose, that's the Father's purpose. The Father's will, that's my will. My speech, yeah, that's the Father's speech. The Father's moves, yeah, they're my moves. My mind, it's the Father's mind. His decisions, they're my decisions. Because I and the Father... There's complete unity between us. He's almost painting this picture of of two synchronized swimmers or divers. It's that type of feel that's going on. You know, we've got the Olympics coming up. And one of the things that I'm not a massive fan of is synchronized swimming. But now and again, I accidentally see it as I walk past. And and you can't help but respect, you know, this ability of what's going on. I think that is so clever. Synchronized diving as well. 
you know, when they're jumping off the boards and doing all the spins. It's so clever because in that moment, there are two individual persons, but they're one in unity, right? It, It looks the same. And what Jesus is saying is the relationship between the Father and I is like that. We're two persons, but we are one in essence. We're the same. There is distinct unity between the Father and I. You know, some people find that really, really hard to grasp and understand. I was reading this week of a guy called Phil Donahue. Phil Donahue was a celebrated American talk show host, and he, and he was at least claiming to be a Christian for many years, but then he completely rejected the faith. And in his autobiography, he explains why he rejects the faith. He says this. He says, if God the Father is so all-loving, why didn't he come down and go to Calvary? Then Jesus could have said, this is my Father in whom I am well pleased. How could an all-knowing, all-loving God allow his Son to be murdered on a cross in order that he might redeem my sins? See, the mistake he had made is he had this idea that God the Father really is God and then he had just created this boy and then he created this boy just for destruction. And so God, the real God in heaven, is just looking on at this kid dying and, and just doesn't really care. It's no big deal. Just trying to help out, trying to save the world and I'll do it through you. But that's not true at all, is it? As the son died at Calvary in great anguish, the reality is the father was going through exactly the same anguish in that moment. The father and the son had dwelt in perfect unity together before there was even time. Perfect delight together. Two as persons, but one in essence. And so as the father, who loves the son, sees the son dying, and as the father turns his face away, They were both experiencing anguish. Two hearts beating as one. It isn't that we can love God the Father but don't like the Son. and I really like the Son, don't like God the Father. (laughs) They're the same. They're the same in essence. Two persons but the same in essence. Phil Donahue couldn't understand that. And so he rejected the faith. But you know, one group of individuals that could understand what Jesus was saying here were the religious Jews. They understood exactly what he was saying. And so they hated him. They understood exactly as he claimed in verse 19, 20 to have complete unity between himself and the Father. They understood that as a direct claim to be God. So they hated him. But he isn't finished yet. Number two, he claims the sovereign power to give life. Look at verse 21. I mean, this is just an audacious claim. He says, For as the Father raises the dead... And gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He carries on then in verse 24. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. My friends, this is an audacious claim. Not only is Jesus claiming to have perfect unity with the Father, he's claiming to have the sovereign power, just like the Father, to give life. And that is audacious. Jesus in this moment is claiming that as I walk around the earth, 
I can not only heal people. I can not only make the blind man see. I can not only give the deaf woman ears to hear. I can not only make the paralyzed walk. I can make people who are spiritually dead alive. I can make them born again. I can bring people from death to life. And so it makes it clear there. Listen, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Me. They will hear my voice and they will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted me to have life in myself. Just like the Father can give life, so can I. Well, the Jews are kicking off. (laughs) They are spitting chips at this point. This is an audacious claim. Who do you think you are? Claiming to be able to give life like God gives life. The Jews would readily understand and acclaim that God is the source of life. And that God is the ultimate source and fountain of all life. They would readily acclaim that. But now they've got a man standing in front of them saying, you know what? God, that's me. I'm here. It's so audacious. And they wanted to kill him. They would have killed him there and then if they could. They hated this blasphemy from what they were hearing. They hated this claim. But you know what? So I was thinking about this claim this week, 2,000 years on for us. Aren't you glad that that claim was true? See, folks, we were dead in our transgressions and sins. Paul can make it any clearer in Ephesians 2. Dead. Utterly, totally dead. You ever tried preaching at a morgue? It's awkward. But that is the reality of what takes place. People are dead dead in their transgressions and sins. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. At 18, 19 years old in my life, I was, as John Bunyan says, Mr. Facing Both Ways. I was in the church and kind of like that now and again, but I was also in the world and really like that most of the time. I had two lives going on all the time. I'm not convinced at all that I was a believer. I think in that moment, I was dead in my transgressions and sins. I just didn't get it. I didn't want to read my Bible because I didn't want to. I just didn't get it. I couldn't quite work out what I was fully saved from. I I mean, am I saved? Do I want to be? I don't know. Church is okay. Got good friends. It wasn't enough for me. I was dead in my transgressions and sins. And yet throughout that season, one thing that happened to me at the age of 19 is as my life was getting worse and worse and worse as I followed what I thought was true freedom in the world. My life was falling ever increasingly into bondage. And it was in that moment that Jesus in all grace came after me. Because I can't take you to a day or a moment in time, but I can take you to a season where I had a passion to read like I'd never had before. Growing up, I think the only book I'd read was The Adventures of He-Man. Once. Because it had pictures in. You know, I even went through GCSE, which is like HSE English. Um, I got a B plus by reading the back cover and then writing about it for an hour and a half. Um, Just making things up. Because I just didn't like reading. But at 19, I, I, wanted, I, I was like as the deer pants for the water. I just wanted to read. I wanted to bottom out, who is Jesus? Who is God? How does this work? And, and God met me. It's scandalous grace. I was dead. I was not running to him. I was running away. But in grace, he was clearly running after me. And that's why you're here too. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. And yet as Paul carries on in the book of Ephesians, he made you alive. Jesus 
The Spirit of Jesus at a set point in your time as He meets you at your well like He does in the woman of Samaria breathes life into your soul. And you wonder in that moment, why didn't I see this before? (laughs) Because you were dead. But now you're alive. He's made you alive. He has breathed life into your soul. Life changing moments. And that is why you are alive. So aren't you glad that this claim is true? Jesus does have the power to give life. But the Jews were not glad. They hated it. They assumed this was blasphemy. They were convinced that he was lying. And so they hated this claim. And they desired more, all the more to kill him. You know, has there ever been such a grieving scene in Scripture? They had God in front of them, telling them, I'm God. They had the one who could give them life right in front of them. For they thought that if I can just keep all these rules, that heaven will be my home. But they have one in front of them that says, you know what? No one comes to the Father except through me. I'm the way and the truth and the life. And yet they reject him, hate him, want to kill him. But he's not finished yet. Number three, the third and final claim he makes is that he claims the sovereign authority to judge. Look at verse 22. It says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. This is audacious at best. He is not only claiming to have unity with the Father. He's not only claiming to be able to be sovereignly give people life. He's now claiming to sovereignly judge people. And what he is basically saying to them is, listen, you try and judge me, but I want you to know that I will one day judge you. And so you need to worship me just like you worship Yahweh. (laughs) That's massive. But he stands toe-to-toe with them, and that is exactly what he says. Then he carries on, verse 27. And he who has given him authority to execute judgment, because he is the Son of Man. That's significant. See, up until now, Jesus has called himself the Son of God. But now... Finally, he's calling himself the Son of Man. And he's using this very specifically to relate it into the authority to judge. You see, that is reminiscent right there of Daniel chapter 7. In Daniel chapter 7, Daniel is prophesying about the Son of Man to come. This is what he says. He says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. Daniel is prophesying hundreds of years before Christ ever comes on the scene. Daniel is prophesying that there will be a day when the Ancient of Days, namely God the Father, hands all authority over to one who is the Son of Man. One whose kingdom will last forever. 
One whose authority will be absolute. And one who himself will be the sovereign judge over all. And as Jesus stands toe-to-toe with these Jewish religious officials in this moment, he says, that son of man, I am he. I'm here. The one who ultimately is given all authority of the kingdom, the one whose kingdom will last forever, the one who you will all stand and give an account to, the one who will stand in front of you on that last day and judge you, I, I am he. And so in what the religious Jews, they hate him. They hunt Jesus down in hatred, believing that you are a Sabbath breaker and questioning him then at length over who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to do this and release this man from the bondage of his paralysis, but then expect him to pick up a mountain walk, breaking the Sabbath? Who do you think you are? I doubt they're expecting that response. Who do I think I am? I'm God. I'm at one with the Father. I have unity with the Father. I have the power to give life. And have the sovereign authority to judge. So isn't it ironic? You would judge me. But actually you will one day give an account to me. At the end of that chapter, how do they respond then? How do the Jews respond? You would hope that as they question him over who he is and he explains that I am God, that they would bow their knee. That their response would be one of my Savior and my God. Just like Thomas does later on in the Gospel of John. You would expect that in a moment as they realize this is he, the Messiah, the one that we've been waiting for, that they would fall to their knees and worship him and repent of their sin and put their faith in him. But they don't. They want to kill him. They hate him. And they want his death. You know, the thing that is interesting for me, though, as you study John chapter 5, is that in all reality, I think our attention can oh so easily be on the Jews. Our eyes can all go to the Jews and think, how could they do that? You know, what is their problem? Why do they not see it? And we can get preoccupied and then we can leave on a Sunday morning and just discuss about how did the Jews not get it? But that's not how chapter 5 functions. Chapter 5 is just like the rest of the gospel. Chapter 5, all attention is not on the Jews at all. I submit to you that all attention and focus is actually on you. Because this whole gospel is written for you. John chapter 20, the Apostle John says this. He says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Why is this gospel written? Why in chapter 5 do we have three outrageous claims of deity? Claims that have life-changing implications on each and every one of us in the room. Why is it there? It is there because in all grace, he is putting it as evidence so that we may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, we may have life in his name. And so the question as we finish is not about the Jews. The question as we finish is what about you? What's your response going to be? We don't sit over this book, do we? 
We don't sit in judgment of this book. It sits over us and it judges us. It applies to us. And so here's then my question as we close. What then is your response going to be now? Jesus claimed to be God. He claimed to be the King of kings and Lord of lords. So what is your response going to be to the King of kings and Lord of lords? You know, there really is only two responses, I think that makes sense in light of all that the Gospel of John teaches us. First response is the response of the non-believer. The response of somebody who doesn't know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Saviour. And if that's you this morning, thank you for coming. You have my deepest respect. And we are, we are honoured to have you in this local church, whether it be for a long time or whether it be just for this morning. We're honoured to have you a part of what we do. But here's what I think the Bible requires in terms of a response from you. Bow the knee and truly believe. That's why the book was written. See, this whole book, the Bible, growing up I used to think of it as a bunch of rules, so it sort of wanted to back away from it because it didn't fancy that. But it's not a bunch of rules. It's a story of the greatest rescue mission ever told. It's a story of mankind that was made by God as God breathed life into man and found out and was made us so that we could find identity in him and joy in him and satisfaction and peace in him. That's where it all begins. But then by Genesis 3, which is not a heavy amount of words before we screw up, mankind rejects God and just sticks with creation. It decides that it wants the world rather than God. And so mankind rejects God and we've all been doing that ever since. And we are then by nature, the Bible says, objects of wrath. We're not able to enjoy the relationship that we were made for because we've sinned. And God is holy. And he could have left us that way. He could have left it so that one day man dies and on that day we give an account for our lives and there's no hope. He could have left us in that state, but he didn't. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came. God himself taking on flesh born into the squalor of a borrowed stable, living a perfect life, and then dying at Calvary, making it clear that all who would put their faith in him as Lord and Savior would have life in his name. Through faith in him, we're able to have the life that we were made for, a life with God, a life where we know that we're forgiven of our sins, a life where we know that we're justified, a life where we know that we can be reconciled to the one who made us, a life that we can know in heaven and eternity knowing that heaven will be our home, not because of us, but because of Jesus Christ. And all the way through then the Gospel of John, the point is simply this. Bow the knee and believe. The Jews don't. They reject him. But the tone of Jesus all the way through is that so God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God, even in his grace, commits John to write a book of evidence so that we may review the evidence. And upon reviewing the evidence, when we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, put our faith in him as Lord and Savior, and then in that moment have the life that we were made to have. Book of Romans then, Paul says this. It says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Christianity isn't a bunch of rules. It's not. Christianity isn't really about reading your Bible. It isn't about praying. It isn't about being a nice person. It's not. 
All those things can be evidence that God has been involved in someone's life, but they never cause it. Christianity is about faith. It's about putting faith in the risen Son of God. And in that moment, the Bible is clear, when we do that, when we confess Him as our King, and when we believe in our heart that He died for us, in scandalous grace then, we have life. I did that when I was 19, and I haven't looked back to this day. I discovered that Jesus was telling the truth. He is God, and that changed my life. And so if you don't know Jesus, I urge you then, bow the knee and truly believe. That's why this book was written. But if you're a believer, then here's how I want to encourage you to respond, because I think there's a response for you here too. Here's how you respond if you know Jesus is your Lord and Savior. In light of all that we've looked at, we take our stand and truly live. (laughs) He came 2,000 years ago so that you may have life and that in abundance. He came so that you as a Christian could know without question that you've been forgiven of your sin. That it's been removed as far as the east is from the west. He came so that you, by grace, could be reconciled back to God the Father so that you could be with him again. So that you could be adopted into his family and enjoy all the benefits that go with that of trusting in him and knowing him and knowing as he walks with you. He came so that you can know without any question that this is not your home, but heaven is, and that we will live in light of this day in light of that day. Knowing that one day heaven will be our home. And that we will be with Jesus for all eternity. And so how do we apply this truth then? How do we apply these claims to deity? We apply them by taking our stand and truly living. And so, when Satan tempts you to despair and tells you of the guilt within. When he starts to point out deficiencies in your life. All the sins that you did commit once upon a time. And all the things you still do wrong today. And you're tempted to back away and just think, maybe I'm not even a Christian. I don't even know how this works. You take your stand. You take your stand. When Satan tempts you to despair, upward you look and see him there. The God-man. Jesus Christ who came to put away all of your sin. Jesus Christ who came to give you life. Jesus Christ who completely claimed that you are justified and that your sin has been removed as far as the east is from the west. And Jesus Christ who you will one day give an account to. What do you think is going to happen? He died for you. When trials come, and we're tempted to think, well, where is Jesus now? I mean, how did this happen? We take our stand and truly live. And as we walk through our life, then even in troubles, we realize that Jesus Christ is with me. He is with me in all that I do. He is with me for lo, I will be with you to the end of the age. I'm going to stand on that truth. And as I walk through trials and difficulties, I want to stand on the truth that Jesus Christ is with me. He hems me in both behind and before. He stands with me as the good shepherd. I want to take my stand and truly live. When plans that we've all made in our lives don't work out, hopes, dreams, things that we thought were all coming together and then at the last minute they don't come together at all, what do we do? Well, as Christians, we take our stand and truly live. We take our stand that Jesus is the ordaining one of all. Jesus is the sovereign one of all. Jesus is the one that has commanded and made it clear in my life that from life's first cry to final breath, I will command your destiny. I am with you. I am in control of all these things. See, as Christians, I think so often we can be so soft theologically. 
We can believe it up here, but it has no function on our lives. It's when the rubber hits the road then in normal life that we need to take our stand and truly live. We truly believe Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ walked the earth. Jesus Christ hung on a cross so that I may have life and that in abundance. I'm going to put my faith in him. That isn't a one-time moment. That is an everyday faith that functions and implicates all of our lives all the time. So what do we do as Christians? We take our stand. We take our stand. And we truly live. Three outrageous claims of deity. Claims that have life-changing implications for each and every one of us. Claims that require response. Folks, make your response wisely. Because your response will impact whether you truly live and enjoy the life that he came to give you or not. True life comes through faith. Here's the facts. He's God. Behold, he's come. Believe and find that life. Father, Father, thank you so much for your word. Lord, you, you didn't have to give us your word at all. You could have decided to leave us. We rejected you. You never rejected us. And yet you didn't. You, you came after us in grace and mercy. You came after us even unto death on the cross. And as your son stands in this moment against the religious leaders, he's not lying at all. He's telling the truth. Lord, I thank you that you are not weak. I thank you that you are not a soft option God that is fearful of people but you're the sovereign king of all you are the lord of lords and king of kings I so lord for each of us then in this room as we gather around your written word as we gather around words that tell us about you words that you yourself have exclaimed to our ears lord would we stand then on these truths where necessary would we bow the knee and truly believe and where necessary would we take our stand and truly live. For you are good, Lord. And all our faith in and all our confidence lies in you. Amen.